Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina and this episode is part of our debate analysis series, a series of episodes dedicated to explaining the motions of Debatable Open 2022. The goal of this series is to give debaters a better understanding of the different topics they've encountered as they competed in the tournament and give those who weren't able to join us a chance to learn from the motions as well. Today we are joined by Migi Sulit, who gave us our topics for the international relations team of the motions. Um, of the tournament, rather. Yeah. <laughs> so, hi, Miggy. Welcome to the Hello. show. Hi, Nina. Hi, Kyle. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So, first things first, tell us about yourself and what you enjoy about IR as a topic. Oh, man. Like, um, I don't want to scare the viewers, but when I first got messaged about IR, I was like, I'm an accounting major. <laughs> Why on earth am I being messaged for this? Um, but... I guess just to share a bit, I really got into IR not because it's related to my course or related to anything I plan on doing in the future, but just because, one, I was in that niche of people who read a lot and are very nerdy, and that kind of became my personality for a while in debate, so it just got forced onto me. And two, I, I don't know, like I, I just ended up having a lot of false eye friends who rant about the class, and that's how I got into IR. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel um, like... I feel like a great way to be able to be good at matter loading and IR in general is to have friends to talk to about it. Because otherwise, people just go like, hmm, nerd. That is true. That is very true. Um, obviously, there's a bit of there's a bit of vanity involved at first. Like if there, if, if it's something that everyone's scared of and you're reading it, there's a bit of self-esteem boost that comes when the motion finally comes out. So I won't lie, that is something that motivated me. But I think the part of me that kind of kept me interested in it is it's such a grand scale topic, but it still interacts with you in your real life. Like I remember one thing that really amused me was a bridge that we used uh, to go to Rockwell. It connects Mandaluring and Makati. Apparently, that's been funded by like Chinese One Belt, One Road loans. And that's crazy, right? This is such a big theoretical topic, and yet it affects my commute to a shopping mall. So, you know, shallow amusements of life, I guess. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting uh, segue to, our, to my next question because it seems that IR is all around us, but there's a lot of misconception about it. So I kind of want to ask, based on your experience as a judge, a debater, as someone who's also part of different edge cores, what do people usually get wrong about international relations? And what advice would you give them in addressing this theme and the motions that come with it. Oh man, I think it's a it's a it's a question that already prompts an answer. Like whenever people see the IR set, it's always, oh no, I haven't read. And the not helpful advice I've heard given too often to this is well, just read more. And I don't find it particularly helpful because one, I think a lot of people read a lot, they're just not reading the right things. But two, it's kind of an impossible piece of advice to follow, right? Like the reason people don't spend their entire day reading about IR is because People have their lives outside debating, and that's perfectly normal, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, um, you know, asking another three hours or two hours a day for IR is a bit of a difficult ask. So I think getting used to IR is more about efficiency than just sheer volume of being exposed to things. So the first good tip I got, shout out to my policy friends, is early on in debate, I was really reading like sheer volume to just cover everything in IR. Like I would be, I would listen to Economist's daily IR updates, then Vox, and then New York Times, and it would take three hours in a day in total. And like, I could do that for one year, but afterwards, like, no, that, that's incredibly tiring. 
So the advice I got, or that I realized was useful, is read a bit of like theory. I remember there was a very early debatable episode about all the IR theories, mga realism, liberalism, Marxism, etc. And honestly, that is going that's going to do so much work compared to just knowing everything that's happening everywhere in the world. Just having an analytical tool, even if you're not familiar with a specific matter, is so useful. Um, my other advice is just um, use newsletters. Like again, like three hours a day is not a sustainable matter loading lifestyle for a lot of people. So what I do nowadays, I have um, a newsletter that releases every two weeks and then another one that releases every month. And I just read them when they email to me and that's how I get my other updates. Um, if anyone's curious, so once every two weeks is called AKE Intelligence. It's just... Um, political crises per region and they give you a brief summary then there's a link if you want to read more the monthly one is called crisis watch and it's just all the conflicts in the world what is the updates which ones have substantially improved or deteriorated and you only have to read it once a month and you're pretty much set uh so that's my matter loading advice my last piece of advice is like oh sorry you're gonna say something no go ahead go ahead um there was a saying in my old institution ashs and I'm very cautious to give it as an advice because people use it as a crutch and they shouldn't. But the joke before, half joking, was to say that IR isn't about matter. IR is about framing. And the reason I don't like this phrase is because people use it as an excuse not to matter load. But for some reason, people seem to think that the rules of debating have been suspended temporarily in an IR set. And it's always about example vomiting. It's always about giving the most like, specific statistics because you're showing off that you've read. But no, right? Like your examples are only as good as your ability to logically prove them. And I think, you know, not as a crutch, but as a, like a reminder to people who do read or don't read that, you know, debate rules still apply, right? If you say, aha, go to this country and you will know that this is really what's happening. If you don't structurally prove how that happens, then, you know, GG pardon. Like my slightly long-winded um, hot takes on IR. Yeah, so with that being said, I think we can move on to the motions themselves. The first one being, this house believes that NATO should not make democratization a prerequisite for membership. The first question actually stands out to me, and I'm sure it stands out to many novice debaters, is what exactly is NATO? We've seen NATO a lot in the news lately, and it just seems to be some weird, ambiguous collection of states Probably the United States, first and foremost, if you don't actually know what, what it do, <laughs> how does it work? Okay, um, I'm going to give you a textbook answer, and I'm going to give you a life is complicated answer. So the textbook answer is, it's a defensive military alliance that was started after World War II in order to contain communism, spread American power projection, and prevent other states like, uh, let's say, for example, Germany, becoming the dominant military power. Um, and pretty much, it started out as just a few Western European countries. Eventually, the U.S. realized, you know, we need this block to protect, like, to project our goals. So the U.S. joined, and there were several waves of expansion. So at first, it was countries that were potentially going to slide towards the USSR. So Greece, Turkey, West Germany was the first wave of expansion after the initial Western European members joined. Um, later on, Spain, when they embraced democracy, so this, is, this one's a bit more related to the motion, was also able to join. And later on, 
more countries, notably in the somewhat close to the former Soviet Union countries joined. So the Czech Republic joined, Hungary joined, Poland joined. And more recently, it's been creeping closer and closer to Russia. But ostensibly, it's still a defensive military alliance that is centered on Europe and the U.S. with the goal of protecting uh, and spreading democratic values and protecting their collective self-defense. So that's, um, that's what the U.S. would tell you. Um, but the fun thing about IR is, it's not always true, right? Like there's so many things that happen. Is it always a defensive military alliance? Is it always only military in nature? Is its goal really just to... Um, you know, be a peacekeeping force or are there more uh, subtle goals such as like containing Russia that are involved as well? Because NATO's like stated goals and it's the same, the ways it actually conducts itself are not necessarily always going to be the same, right? So while on paper, it's a defensive alliance. There were instances when they got involved in the affairs of non-member states. For example, um, in Libya, when you know Gaddafi was in a civil war, it was NATO that enforced a uh, no-fly zone over the country. That wasn't a member state. That wasn't defensive. And the Russians were you know, all over them about it. Uh, I think in Kosovo, they engaged in a bombing campaign at one point. That wasn't a defensive military alliance. So there's also, and I'm kind of hinting at the arguments now, some reason that Russia doesn't like it, doesn't see it the same way as it self-identifies. Um, but that's that's the fun of that's the fun and complexity of doing IR motions that are complicated. You can't even agree on the definition. Yeah. So what's interesting about NATO is that it, it's different in practice than it is on paper. But the complexities in it come really in its membership. So I kind of want to ask, um, based on your understanding of NATO, or I guess like based on what you want to share, how does one really become a member? Like besides democratization, like you've already mentioned. What does it mean to become a member? What obligations exist? Um, what do they owe each other? Is it something that people can just willingly join? Uh, how does this play out? So membership is based on a few principles, right? So there's one is uh, functioning democracy. That's a democ- democratization st- standard. There's also expectations that they will implement a market economy. Um, there's also a preference for resolving uh, issues peacefully and respecting the sovereignty of other NATO countries. And this was uh, Trump's favorite before, um, although it's not necessarily as strictly enforced. Um, there is a expectation that you'll be willing to militarily compute, contribute to NATO operations. Uh, so it's generally a pro-democracy, pro-free market military uh, alliance. And so long as you're able to continue to adhere to the standards, you're able to uh, still partake in NATO. That's how you are able to join NATO and keep your membership. Um, It's interesting that there is no explicit expulsion clause in NATO. Um, But there is some scholars have argued a way to argue that if you violate those kinds of principles, a case can be made for you to be um, expelled. Uh, some arguments have been made about Turkey. Um, other arguments have been made about some Eastern European countries that are sliding back democratically, and that'll factor in a bit later in the arguments. But generally speaking, I think no one has been kicked out yet, although that is something that could happen in the future. So, uh, in terms of how, sorry. So, in, in terms of how the okay, go go, Kyle. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, I was going to ask since. It seems like democratization has always been a standard or a prerequisite. I guess my question is, 
why did it really have to be that way? Like, when NATO was created, was it always intended to be just a bunch of democracies? Um, especially considering that, like, its purpose is to be a, a defensive organization. So why do you need to be a democracy in order to do that goal of creating a demo, uh, to create a defensive block or whatever NATO was supposed to be? Definitely. Um, so I think we have to remember the historical context. It was originally founded in post-World War II when you were shifting from defeating the Axis to the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR. So democracy was part of the way that the U.S. also wanted to keep the USSR in check, right? And that was its purpose for the most of the Cold War. But you know, as we know now, um, without the USSR, it's kind of devolved into not necessarily a, p- a purposeless entity, but the impetus to contain communism, spread democracy, doesn't seem as strong um, in present day compared to back during the Cold War. So a lot of people even question, is NATO still something that should exist? Does it have relevance given that all its original objectives have been achieved? Um, Sorry, wait. Was there another part to your question? <laughs> no, I was just asking why was it a prerequisite considering that it's just supposed to be a defensive bloc? Like, does NATO assume that in order for it to be an effective defensive bloc, you first need to be a democracy? Um, yeah, that definitely was assumption in um, counteracting the spread of the Soviet Union and authoritarian communist states. But again, like without that, that's what's being called in the question, which is motion. So I guess my next question is, how do you check for this prerequisite? Like, what are the standards for you to be considered a democratized country? Um, is there like a, a yearly check-in? Do they just check you once? And then they don't care what happens to you afterwards. Uh, what's the system like for this? So, um, so from my understanding, the the most important check-in is at the point where you are let into NATO. And I think the clearest uh, the clearest example of this is what happened to Spain, right? So for the longest time after World War Two, they were a uh, like a Francoist dictatorship. Um, they had a transition period with the monarchy and they eventually had a peaceful transition of power in 1982. And 1982 was also the year that they were accepted into NATO. So that's the clearest um, example of democracy being the, road, the roadblock that's preventing a country from getting membership. It is, you know, when you are able to show you can have free and fair elections peacefully that you get in. So that's one standard. But I don't think it's super hard defined. It's more of a statement of principles that members are expected to abide by. So the actual process of getting in, eventually the final step is going to be, do all the current members unanimously think you should be in based on the guiding principles mentioned earlier? So it is a bit ambiguous, although I do think that might have been done on purpose. So on government, you're supposed to defend that we shouldn't make it a prerequisite. But in that case, what would be the prerequisite then? What would the alternative be? Like, if it's not the standard, what would membership now be based on? So I think um, on government, just for the sake of not changing too many things and having too many things to defend, I would keep the other standards. So market economy, you can keep that. Treating your minority populations fairly, you could keep that. Committing to resolve conflicts peacefully before escalating militarily, you can also keep that, etc. Um, so you keep all the other standards that exist now, but probably you would need like some phraseology about what constitutes a legitimate government if it's not democracy. Um, perhaps depending on how the case you'd want to run would go, 
is it could be a commitment to respecting sovereignty or it could be about service delivery, right? So are you able to provide for the needs of your citizens regardless of whether or not you're a democratic state? Um, because as long as people's lives are getting better, you know, that's something that NATO can still um, support you in so long as you are not breaking those like minimum thresholds of not um, abusing your population. So we can jump now to the arguments, I guess. And I guess for this motion, it's usually divided into two parts, right? Like proving the harms of the current thing and improving the counterfactual to be beneficial. So let's start with that first one. What are the harms of this current standard for membership? And why do you think if you were in government, democratization is not the way to go? So there, I think there are two areas, three areas that could be affected by this. So one is aspiring members. Two is, uh, it's a bit... um further out since no one's been kicked out yet, but it has been raised in the past. Members that are prob- that are arguably backsliding from democracy and may no longer meet these standards on a technical level. And I think the third one is just like dealing with Russia. Like there is the elephant in the room in terms of a lot of NATO's policy. So right now there are three aspiring members, right? Ukraine, uh, Bo- uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina um, and Georgia. These are all democratic countries, but I think there are times in Ukraine in particular's past when you could say that because of all of these requirements in joining NATO, that led them to choose an independent foreign policy rather than strictly aligning with the East or the West. And there is a strong argument to be made that all these requirements are pushing countries towards trying to strike a balance with neutrality rather than fully being willing to commit to NATO. And um, as like right now, the current matter seems to prove that doesn't seem to be a tenable strategy for a lot of countries. Now, does that require you to defend some level of authoritarianism? Um, perhaps, but precisely because these are just statements of principles and ultimately it's the member states that decide if they're abiding by it, there can be some allowance in terms of like, okay, how authoritarian is too authoritarian? What level of like Russian cooperation is acceptable? Um, if it, even if it distorts democratic mechanisms, etc. The second group of countries I think it affects is countries that are potentially on their way out. Um, so I think Turkey's um, use of force um, and general authoritarianism has called in some questions about the suitability to be in NATO. So there's no like standing motion to expel them. But if trends continue, there is a real chance that they could like go below that minimum threshold. Um, but again, like go back to the idea of what NATO's goal is right now. If it's Russian containment, then countries ejecting themselves or being ejected out is exactly what Russia wants. So this could also be a bit of a prophylactic move just to prevent um, countries from leaving uh, the West's sphere of influence. Um, so long as even if they're not fully democratic, they still have some commitment to human rights to not actively hurting their populations, even if their elections are not perfect. Um, the last area in terms of government is... There is a fairly popular, not super popular take that a lot of Russian aggression is explainable by the encroachment of Western liberal democracy closer and closer to its borders, right? So the fact that more countries are politically aligning with the West, um, aside from being a military threat, and I think, I think like the military risk is going to be the same on either side, but the fact that they are looking more and more like Western liberal democracies, um, there's a strong argument to be made that perhaps this scares Russia into thinking there will be domestic threats in its own country, especially if they're right across the border, that they're running out of allies. 
Um, and saying that that is no longer a hard ideological goal of NATO's, converting all these countries to democracies, could be a way that not necessarily gets Russia on your side, but prevents them from thinking that the West is actively out to get them. And the argument goes that if the enlargement of NATO were not this ideological battle against Russia, it could have ended a bit more peacefully. So I guess for Gov, the next part is what would be the benefits of removing the standard? Like we already talked about why it's harmful, but the converse would be why would removing it be actually a good thing? Like how could it achieve the goals of NATO better if ever that is an issue in the debate? Um, so yeah, like if we're going to talk about what NATO is for, I think Gov teams have to argue that removing this standard actually brings us closer to that goal. So how would you recommend Gov teams to do this? So definitely, I think I would just go to the just go to the same policy areas that came up in the problematizing. So for aspiring countries, they will no longer feel that. Um, the West or the U.S. is imposing its own government structure on them, that they will um, be able to at least maintain a hybrid enough regime not to actively antagonize Russia. Um, for countries that are backsliding, um, it's a bit difficult to defend authoritarianism, granted, but keeping them in the alliance and preventing them from being invaded or, put, or taken into Russia's sphere is arguably like a better thing for their citizens. Um, and then thirdly, I guess it's like some kind of permanent settlement with Russia. It's very hard to argue that they will completely demilitarize if democracy is no longer standard. Um, but I definitely think in terms of it is one of the multiple drivers of Russian aggression, it might be also easier to reach some kind of agreement with them. I guess we can now go to opposition and sort of analyze it from the flip side. Or I guess in this case, it would be status quo, right? So how would you argue for the necessity of this standard? So I think the, the, the not just argument, but also the tone I would strike at opposition is, you know, you're playing this 5D geopolitical chess game with Russia, but hello, propping up authoritarian dictatorships is bad. Hot take. I hope that's not controversial. Um, I think like, so, so after you get past that principle, um, I do think that the other argument I would take is, in many ways, like this commitment to democracy is one of the only things really holding NATO together that a lot of, for example, um, Western European countries are also a lot more economically uh, interlinked with Russia. And one of these things that they have in common with the US um, and they have in common as like, quote unquote, the West in general, is that shared commitment to democracy. So you could also question, you know, is this the last thing holding NATO together? Possibly. But also, it's not as if all the things that like Gov is going to say are going to come true, right? Um, does the current framework allow for countries to have some lapse into authoritarianism? Because you know, that's the nature of elections. Sometimes you elect a government that doesn't fit into your liberal democratic mode. Um, I don't necessarily think that the remedy always has to be expel them the moment they get a bit authoritarian. There might be some room, maybe with closer military cooperation, maybe with economic incentives, to work within the existing framework and also you know, bring these, guide these countries a bit closer back to democracy. 
Um, in terms of Russia, then, <laughs> I think the current matter supports giving Russia concessions is not going to appease them. They will just ask for more, a bit more than the Gov framing. Like, the way that Gov frames it is that this is one of the things that Russia is motivated by, this fear of liberal democracy at its doorstep. But it's clearly not the only thing they're motivated by, right? Like, it's also a lot of expansionism. There's also a lot of, you know, maybe spoilers for the second motion, nationalism involved. Um, so arguably, like you're granting some concessions, but you're getting nothing in return. So might as well stick to your guns. So I guess now, like since we're now talking about opposition, what are the harms of the alternative standards that would be given by government? So government here would be saying that it's not about being a democracy, it's about all these other standards. But the question now is, why would just using those standards be harmful, especially the ones that you talked about earlier? Definitely. So far, we've been discussing these standards as if they're all separate things, right? But I think there's a strong case to be made that you know, the ability to have a market economy or the ability to respect things like property rights or a willingness to resolve conflict peacefully or be willing to respect other NATO member states. You could argue that a lot of that comes from being politically aligned with all these other countries, making it much more difficult to be aggressive towards them, right? And a lot of that also stems from democracy. So you could say that you know, if there's no political alignment in terms of uh, like government form, in terms of a commitment to democracy, how likely are all these members going to follow their promises on these other things um, if those are also things that democracies tend to pursue and authoritarian governments tend to not pursue. So at a certain point, like if you don't think they're going to follow it, then you might as well not have that standard. So the last thing I want to ask for this motion and to wrap things up before we move on to the next topic is what else would be affected by this motion? So I, I, based on our conversation, it seems that a lot of it is very geopolitical, very related to international relations. And admittedly, it, these are not very accessible topics or accessible arguments, especially for those who might not know a lot about NATO or even the prerequisites of membership or even what's going on with the world right now. So if you were in a position of a debater who's completely new to this, how would you approach a motion like this? What other angles would you look into? What extensions can you possibly think of outside of what was already discussed? I think um yes I think without um going into the intricacies and specifics of how NATO works um what the other angle you could argue is how does NATO get involved uh militarily and what does that look like if it is a democracies only club right so thinking that democratization is really, really important to this entity might bias or prejudice the kinds of interventions it's supposed to make, right? So by seeing itself as a enforcer of democracy, arguably, that might make it a bit trigger-happy in terms of intervening in other countries and um, supposedly humanitarian pretexts it invades, for example. Um, that might be something that also worsens or also hurts uh, its credibility as an organization and perhaps having a few more hybrid governments or flawed, uh, or flawed democratic governments within the consensus building process or the process of like, deciding when you intervene um, would also maybe one, like help it choose uh, better when it needs to intervene or two, um, if it does intervene, grant a bit of 
credibility. This is not a you know, democratic imposition of our government form on other countries. Here are a diverse group of people that all agree that this is a necessary step to take. Um, so I think that's a nice angle for extension. Okay, so we can move on to the next motion, which is about myth-making. So it's about opposing the use of nationalist myth-making in constructing and justifying foreign policy decisions. The first question here would be, what even is nationalist myth-making in this context? How would you characterize it? What does it even look like? So, so just, just, to, just going on a slight tangent. The inspiration for this motion was uh, the U.S. Um, embassy in Kiev released a meme Um, it's uh, it showed Moscow and it showed Kiev on different dates in the Middle in the Middle Ages, and Kiev had all these cathedrals, architecture, buildings, whatever. And Moscow was just like roads and like forests. And I'm like, hmm, this is like this is a meme. But what's the point of this? Like, what are what are all these countries trying to do when they try to make these conflicts not just about the pragmatics of what's happening, but they also try to tie it into some sense of national identity. So I think that that's a distinction I would make when talking about uh, nationalist mismaking. It's not just the pragmatic considerations of do we enter this country, do we declare war, um, do we uh, engage in sanctions, do we join in disagreement. It's also making it, uh, how do you say this, a bit more personal, right? It's also about the identity and the grand historical narrative that your country bases its decisions on. Rather than just pure pragmatics, so it's not just like this isn't about like historical fabrication, right? This is about simplifying the complexities of history into making this into making this internally coherent narrative that you also use as the basis of your foreign policy. So I guess the next part of this motion, I mean, if we're defining terms here, would be the foreign policy decisions. And I kind of want to see what you are imagining this debate to be about. Like, what foreign policy decisions do you expect both? Teams to be talking about primarily. Um, so I definitely think you know uh, again like recency bias, um, like war and invasions are definitely going to be a big talking point in this round, right? So um, if one of the things um, you're watching, uh, if if you're following the news in Ukraine and Russia, is how Russian media is sort of priming the public for an invasion. So um, talking about the cultural differences between Ukrainians and Russians or other Russian propaganda like that um, is also um, an important part of their um, way of justifying or selling to the public decision. So even on, conversely, on the Ukrainian side, you also have this nationalist narrative of anti-Russian resistance that has been um, arguably quite effective in really selling the resistance to occupation to the citizens on getting them willing to you know, contribute to the fight rather than give up even against a technologically superior uh, and militarily superior opponent. Um, but I also think like a bit less intuitive is also friendly action. So uh, joining regional unions, maybe even negotiating treaties with different countries, um, the idea of you not doing it just out of pragmatism, but because you have a certain role to play in the international stage. Let's say the U.S. likes to think of itself as this Um, world police that must enforce order on the rest of the world. Maybe Japan's uh, national myth could also be about pacifism and non-interventionism. Um, it really depends uh, per country. Russia sees itself as in some kind of civilizational war against, you know, quote unquote, the West. Um, and that affects all sorts of decisions, not just wars, but also when you sign an agreement with another country, do you see them as an ally? What kinds of um, interventions do you engage in? Are they mostly just sending aid? Are you willing to engage in war as a part of your foreign policy? Um, those are also motivated by how you see yourself as a country. 
So on Gov, what would it mean to oppose the use of this myth making? Particularly, what I what I want to ask is, what would the alternative be? Like right now, these governments are doing this nationalist myth making in order to justify foreign policy decisions. But on Gov, what other kinds of narratives could they use in order to justify these decisions? Or like, is it just going to be like cold robotic facts? Is that what's expected for Gov to argue in this debate? I definitely think like, it, it may boil down to cool robotic facts. But obviously, if you're a Gov team, um, you want to try and pitch it a bit. Um, how would I phrase it? So maybe it's not a matter of pitching the hard facts as a principle, but the way I would phrase the principle is you want to be honest with your constituents, right? Like this is what we are going into. These are the costs we might incur. Um, this is why we are still doing it. Um, do we have the public support rather than you know playing into their um, like emotional attachments to the country or in many ways using this mismaking as a kind of cattle prod to um, corral uh, citizens into supporting what the government wants rather than the other way around, which is how like democracy should work. Um, maybe like this, the less emotion ladenness is not about raw objectivity, but just a matter of allowing uh, citizens headspace to think for themselves without being um, kind of like you know. Kind of like pitched based on these very emotive nationalist uh, feelings. So if that's the pitch, you want it to be much more straightforward, much more matter of factly. It doesn't have to be robotic. Like I don't agree with how Kyle phrased it earlier, but I mean it makes sense. If you were in opposition, you'd phrase it to be that way, right? But exactly. yeah. So the next question I have is, what would you argue in government? What's the necessity, and what are the benefits of? Being very straightforward, especially to constituent that might not understand facts and might be like more into the memes that Ukraine is posting right now. So definitely. Um. So I think that does make it harder to justify a lot of interventions. But on government, I would argue like those are important constraints to have. Right. Look at how easily um you can whip up the public into from not supporting a war to play the propaganda machine a bit and suddenly a lot of them are in favor. Like that is a crazy amount of power for a government to have. And if the Republic just gets bored, like that might just be a better alternative rather than going into a very costly and probably very violent war that might drag on for God knows how long. Um, but also the matter of factness might also make the commit like in the event that the intervention is justified. Um, the matter of factness, the fact that people are upfront and knowing that this is what is going to cost us, and knowing that we're doing it anyway because of these reasons, um, that might you know make people a bit less enthusiastic um, in the short term. But in terms of managing expectations, in terms of um, not uh, allowing the overselling of how well it's going to go um, motivate the public, that might also make for a more sustainable policy um, moving forward. Because you know, if you hype it up and the memes don't come true, then that's also going to be a problem for the country in the future. So we can move on now to opposition. We already talked about what the counter policy or what the stance of opposition might be, especially like even in terms of clash, like. We already talked about how opposition has an interest in portraying Gov's alternative to be like cold and calculating, as opposed to like actually emotionally resonant. But what could opposition argue building off of that? Like, how would you justify this nationalist myth making? Because I feel like in in the debate sphere, there is sort of a bias or at least like an inclination towards truth. 
And the way that this motion is worded, like the, the term used is myth-making, it already seems like they're just making stuff up. So how would you justify that on opposition? Okay. Um, so I think like, so I think on opposition, I definitely would first try to make a distinction between like actively fabricating information and just creating um, parang a nationwide nationalist way of why we do things and what our identity is and tying that identity um, to your foreign policy. Um, but I guess it can also be quite useful at times. So we've been assuming that the um, the country engaging in mismaking is um, quite aggressive, arguably quite evil. And we've been using, using Russia as an example, but that can also be an advantage that militarily inferior states have. Um, for example, um, the reason there's so much public opposition to Russia that can also, um, in Ukraine, for example, be used um, to at least make it very difficult for uh the country to get invaded if it's not an actual deterrent, make it uh, more unfeasible. Um, the fact that you have won over the public in terms of uh, motivating them to not to continue to resist these kinds of things um, can also be quite important, especially if you're a militarily inferior country. Um, and arguably, like that is probably close to one of the only resources these sorts of countries can have: the willing that the willingness to you know, fight and die for your homeland. Um, especially if you don't have like big allies, can be like the last deterrent you can have to actually um, getting invaded, that this is, you know, something you will fight tooth and nail for. Um, I also think that it's important to have these kinds of, like, emotionally resonant narratives, because, like, you know, if, if you're in the face of, like, occupation, um, the, the most natural thing to do would be, you know, maybe keep your head down, avoid resisting opposition, and while that may make sense on an individual level, on a collective level, there's a very strong argument to be made that that weakened the country. So thank you so much for those arguments. I guess the last thing I want to ask before we wrap this one is, besides, you know, the very um, timely issue of Russia and Ukraine, what other situations or bits of matter would you recommend people look into if they want to know more examples and situations where this motion might apply? So... Yeah, so I think we've been talking about war for most of this, right? But th- like, war is not the only foreign policy decision that countries make. Um, I think one nice example could be regional unions. So when countries, um, you know, go- deal together, whether it's the EU or ASEAN, um, there is also this level of you know, we have a shared identity, we have a shared history, and that is why we're uniting. And that might be a better sell to the public than just like raw economics and the geopolitical facts and the need for balancing different powers. Um, that might be a better way to sell a lot of regional cooperation as well. Um, on the other hand, um, so I think that's like that's how I would defend um, nationalist uh, mythmaking. Um, other examples for opposing it, it might also be just like not just um, authoritarian invasions, but also like um, even democratic countries can be prone to this. Um, the, for example, the list of countries the U.S. has invaded on Wikipedia is notoriously long. And you could argue, you know, maybe that's also because you have the sense of them protecting the rest of the world. It's a manifest destiny to decide how other countries are run. And perhaps if they tone that down a bit, they wouldn't um, be this aggressive in terms of intervening in other countries' affairs. So it's not necessarily just on authoritarian thing saying um, democratic countries can also be prone to this, you know, hype train. So moving on to the last motion for this set, the motion reads, as occupying countries rebuilding post-intervention states, this house would grant preferential legal privileges to citizens that were not complicit in wrongdoing. I feel like this is a very complicated motion because there's so many moving parts. 
So I guess the simplest thing that we can talk about first, like to break it down, what does it mean to be a post-intervention state? Is it different from like a post-conflict state or like a young state or a new democracy, whatever? How would you characterize their situation in the country, especially in relation to this motion? So I think the, the, the easiest way to answer that is like when do interventions happen? Usually there's been some horrible incident in the country and the, the international community says, okay, enough is enough. We need to prevent this from happening. So this might be a situation where uh, like the government has committed atrocities, shot protesters, suppressed minorities, and it's gotten to a point where um, maybe NATO, maybe uh, the UN says, okay, we need to stop this from happening again. So there is like some level of injustice, which is why um, the motion's phrased in terms of wrongdoings and responsibility for those wrongdoings. Um, so obviously, because you've been, you've just been invaded, you're probably in the, ha- in the hands of some form of caretaker government. So that's where the legal privileges come in. You need to reconstruct the new legal system that this country will live on. You need to hold um, elections. I need to figure out who's going to be having political power uh, in these scenarios because you can't, well, I, hopefully, you don't as an occupying power stay there forever. Um, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that there are, I'm not sure how much of the debate can happen in immoral interventions, but I do think there are uh, nuances to be had in interventions with a bit of gray area that um, the occupying country might not necessarily fully understand the ethnic divisions in the country. It's going to be a bit um, more uh, upside, but I think government can use some stuff here too, where the, um, the occupying country doesn't necessarily understand every nuance in the country that it's occupying. Uh, you probably want to set up some kind of system for them to autonomously govern themselves uh, sooner rather than later. So the next part of this motion is about the preferential legal privileges. So how would you describe them? Like how, what makes them privileges per se? How do people access them? Um, what does it mean to be preferred? Basically, what do you imagine these members of a society having that others don't. Will it be like a social credit system? Like, oh, you, you didn't participate in wrongdoing before. I will give you a job. Yeah. That's um maybe maybe not a job, but that's honestly not so far from um what I thought. Because so there are two areas that I think that this debate happens in. Maybe there are more that teams mentioned. Um, one is in terms of political representation, right? So who will end up being in the UN-backed government? Like who's going to be calling the shots? Is it going to be the same people as before? If so, how do you prevent problems? Uh, the same problems from arising. Is it going to be the ones who weren't in power and didn't commit these atrocities? Um, is that government going to be any better? Um, will it be more stable? Will it be able to even you know, hold the country together um, if it doesn't have that experience of being in power? Those are all questions of the debate. Um, the other area I think this applies in is the reparation scheme. So earlier we mentioned that some horrible injustice um, had happened in the country and you are probably going to be wanting to compensate the victims for that. And usually the way that it happens is like, you know, you make the country responsible, right? So you as a state figure out your taxation policy, um, pay these indemnities to the people that you wronged. But within the members of that state, people can be more or less innocent, right? You, um, maybe on an extreme end, there were people who were not born yet when those atrocities happened, but you must still um, pay the cost of reparations to things like taxes. Maybe there are people who are imprisoned. On a more moderate angle, maybe there are people who uh, were instrumental in the government's policy because they you know, supported the government like, economically, they paid their taxes, but could have voted against these governments. They could have protested these governments anyway. Are those people um, innocent? So like, it's also about the sheer nuance 
of all these kinds of actors that exist um, in these countries and how you're going to allocate responsibility um, for those wrongdoings as represented by uh, your legal system, let's say your tax code, um, the burden of reparations to these different actors. So in this motion, it is basically making a distinction, right? We are treating one group of people differently from another group. So the question now is, are these real and substantial differences? Like, who are these actors anyway? And what kind of wrongdoings have they committed that on government would warrant this differential treatment? And how would you, on government or opposition, characterize who these actors are and what the extent of their wrongdoing was? This is a, this is a fun question, the motion, because complicity is such a subjective thing. So it's very, um, very up for debate. Uh, so I think there are two ways uh, a team can approach this. One is they sit down, they crunch the numbers, and they try to do the math, right? Um, you, know, you, get, you go at all these civilians, to what extent would they support the government? To what extent do they have means available to prevent themselves from doing anything that supported the government? Um, did they have agency in terms of the actions they were taking? Were they following orders? Um, where their lives threatened, etc. Um, and you could just go through all of those scenarios one by one. Which um, ethnic groups were they from? Was they um, involved in the political decision-making process, etc.? Um, you could go through those criteria uh, one by one and try to figure out some kind of sliding scale um, for all those factors. Um, that's a bit of a that sounds already. And op is going to have a field day the moment they hear this proposal. That sounds like such a pain that's going to be contested, that's going to get delayed. Uh, which is why I think the more modest proposal on government is just to carve out a class of exempt citizens that are clearly innocent. So, for example, probably the people who were victims of a lot of these wrongdoings, um, probably the people who were sh- uh, explicitly shut out of political decision making, uh, maybe, for example, the opposition that was um, suppressed in order to um, get away with these atrocities. Um, so that's the sort of distinctions we would make. Um, it can either be done manually. So in that case, it's more accurate, but it's also pragmatically a bit of a difficult thing to do. Or you can just carve out exemptions. Opposition team would question whichever uh, aspect of that the gov proposal is not strong. In. So given that we have now those definitions for these terms in the motion, I guess we can now go to the meat and potatoes of everything. So If you were in government, what do you think are the crucial arguments to run? Because it seems like given that there there is like a fun term here about being complicit and what it could mean, there's a lot of different things you can argue. So I want to ask what you think are essential that every debate must have, especially if you are a government team. So um, I think like the logistics of rebuilding a country are going to change from room to room and from, you know, what teams are familiar with. But I think the uh, the core of it really is a principle that invasions suck. Why are innocent people who had nothing to do with these um, atrocities being punished and being forced to pay the cost of these invasions? Right? So I do think that the, this is a round where the principled argument is quite strong, um, especially because it's very easy to play up um, just how vulnerable these people are, how they had nothing to do with it, and they're still being treated equally as people who did have something, who did something wrong. Um, I do think another central argument, more on the pragmatic side, is the need to reconstruct the country in a way that prevents you from having to do this again, right? Because again, like in invasions are incredibly messy, lots of people die. So at the point where you leave, one, you want to leave before something horrible happens um, because they're being occupied by foreign power for an, for an extended period of time. Um, but two, when you leave, you want to make sure that things don't implode, right? And that is probably going to involve some kind of rebalancing, giving those who are out of power and were exploited in the past the ability to defend themselves 
um, while not making it so excessive as to them becoming some kind of minority government that just like spokes on a wheel, um, turns on the people who were once oppressing them in the past. So that's the kind of balance that government is going to want to strike. So um, a principle about, in a sense, and why you can never punish these, these, um, these civilians, um, to probably a pragmatic argument about the need to restructure the problems that existed in the form of government um, prior to the intervention. So on the other hand, what are the essential arguments that you would expect most, if not all, debates to have on opposition bench? I think um, God has their pet principle. Op also has their own pet principle, right? This is, in many ways, um, a bit of a you know hubristic attempt by a country that does not fully understand the intricacies of what it's dealing with, especially as a, if it's like this, you know, whoever the UN called to task for this, um, that probably does not fully understand the nuances of who was involved, how were they involved, etc. And whether in actuality or even just in perception, this could be something that makes these divisions worse, um, especially if you're giving privileged status to a group of people that's already quite hated in that country. Um, you could arguably worsen a lot of ethnic tensions, and you could do it despite having the best intentions as a country that doesn't fully understand the local climate. So a hands-off, neutral, um, hold elections, let democracy see the side approach might not be perfect, but it's arguably the best thing that does not have a really bad outcome attached to it. Um, I think the other side of the principle is like, what does it mean to be complicit? Like at a certain point, if you argue that boring, literally being imprisoned and having no control and not being born, um, generally speaking, insofar as you are still instrumental to the existence of that state, or even if you still voted against that state or you protested against that state, you still help them achieve their goals by being a productive citizen there. You know, that's still something that maybe doesn't make you a bad person, but also means you have something to repay to the people who were wrong. Um, but even if you're part of that group, but still assisted in the functioning of the state, that could also be an argument for everyone being complicit to some extent. The other thing I would do on op, and this is just the fun part, like just drown it in pragmatics. Like what does it mean to be innocent? Will people accept this? Will this take forever? Will this be contested to death? Will this government possibly be even worse than the one that preceded it? Especially if it's a form of minority rule. Just like paint the apocalypse. It's fun. Um, and that's just off, just drowns them in pragmatics. So thank you so much for the analysis for all three motions. So I like how they can all be about the same thing, but they're fundamentally all different in terms of their focus. And I guess it's just that we got lucky that, well, not lucky, but it's just a coincidence really that there is a big major event that we're living through once again that applies <laughs> to all these motions. So I guess to conclude though, Miggy, I wanted to ask a question that I'm sure a lot of debaters, especially the new ones, want to know about as well. So I'm not just going to ask you for advice for novice debaters. I kind of want to ask specifically, how do you deal with rounds and debates where you know nothing about? So perhaps it would help if you could give an anecdote or a situation you've been in where you absolutely knew nothing and what mindset do you think debaters should have when they encounter things like NATO or the EU and they just don't know what to say? Oh man. Oh man. That's that that's always um that's always rough. Um I think the first thing is some so like sometimes uh I guess it's like related to the advice I gave earlier. Like sometimes um it's not only about matter, it's also still the normal rules of debate. So it's about proving incentives, it's about you know, first principles of um, how do states 
act and respond to incentives? Is it based on uh, a balance of power? Is it based on wanting to be aligned politically all the time so that you can cooperate and engage in um, treaties? Um, so a lot of it isn't um, based... I, I don't want to give the people the advice not to read, but a lot of it is also based on proving incentives. Like if you don't um, have an understanding of what the specifics in a motion are, like the specific countries, you probably do still have an understanding of how states in general act when faced in certain situations. If you don't have an understanding of that, you can definitely come up with what is a reasonable reaction to this in prep. I remember, I think it was my UADC Octos um, two years ago with Naj and Ina. Um, we had, I think it was like uh, Saudi Arabia, should they have closer ties with China and the US? Uh, like I wasn't the... <laughs> Like, I wasn't as much of an IR person back then. Um, uh, Naj had it read it. Ina had it read it. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it was a set. And it was three emotions we didn't really know a lot about. And we we, cho- we ended up with the least... Unf- we vetoed the most unfamiliar motion. We put a one on the least unfamiliar motion. And we stuck with Saudi Arabia, China, and the US. And um, I guess, like, it came back to, like, first principles talaga, right? Like, what are your basic understandings of each of these countries? Like, Saudi Arabia... Even if you don't know how its economy works, you know it's um, uh, a monarchy in a very relatively unstable region and it probably has security threats it has to deal with. You know that China is um, another authoritarian country that is wanting to expand its influence outside this region. Um, you know that the U.S., um, maybe if, maybe if, even if you don't know that the U.S. has a close military relationship with Saudi Arabia, you know at the very least that it has some interest in the Middle East and some interest in courting Middle Eastern countries. And uh, we didn't win that round. But slowly, based on just starting with what do we know about these countries, even if it's really limited, and carving out incentives from those premises, um, we were able to come up with at least a cohesive phase, right? Um, so I guess to sum this up, it's still debating, right? You know, your examples are not um, going to win or lose you on their own, uh, but it's also the ability to logically prove them. And even if you don't have, um, you know, even if you don't have like the specifics of the matter, you always have the, uh, you always have the ability to like prove things based on the limited stuff you do know. And sometimes that can be a benefit too, right? You don't bog down your entire case on the one piece of matter that you really want to come out in the round but you're actually starting from you know, first principles and premises and building it out as a case like you would in any other debate. Um, so my, my advice is just treat it like debate. Uh, my other advice is like, don't be salty if you lose. You know, It's the luck of the draw. It happens even to the best of us. So don't sweat it too much. Yeah, so thank you so much for teaching us that even the serious topics even if you lose, that's okay. And this is also something that we personally believe in. Mm. Like, debate is all about, like, your own personal growth, being able to process what you know about learning as much as you can, wherever you can. So we're very thankful to have had you in our podcast and as a motion contributor because you actually did learn a lot from talking to you about these things. Especially, like, there are so many things that are happening around the world today and it tends to be very overwhelming. Well, when you structure it in like debate world or a podcast world or in a post-debate analysis, it helps us make sense of these things. So we really thank you again for agreeing to appear on our podcast and to be our motion contributor. And that's it for this episode. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again, Maggie. Thank you. Bye. Bye.